You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey, dear friends. So good, so very good to have you with us today. Remember now, the place for a man, for a woman completing all their powers is in the fight, the spiritual fight, and right now, even today, making disciples of the nations. So stay tuned, stay encouraged. We have a rendezvous with destiny. All right, folks, uh, I think I told you last time, I'm I'm an old talk show host. I used to have a radio program and kind of gotten out of all of that now. But I started up this podcast because I thought it'd be fun to talk about some things from time to time, even now. So one of the things we do as talk show hosts is we talk about issues. So I thought maybe the best thing I can do, you know, this podcast is a a little bit changing over the uh, last few weeks, trying to find the right format. I think it's better to start and find the format than find the format and then get, you know, kind of calcified in that. But having said that, I've been wondering, should I talk about a few issues before the issue of the day? And indeed, we're going to start doing that, I think. Just a couple things that I found interesting in the in the news this week that we wanted to get out there, talk about that very briefly, and then get to the topic of the day. And for whatever it's worth, the topic of the day today is what is happening out there on the front lines of the abortion fight. Because uh, here at the seminary I go to, we take the abortion fight pretty seriously across many years. So we're going to talk about that. And by the way, the the abortion fight that we're in here locally is the abortion clinic that is now in front of the Supreme Court. And that decision will come out here in some months, obviously. But uh, that is the very abortion clinic that is uh, kicking up all the dust right now in Washington, D.C. and soon to be all across the nation. So we'll get to all of that right after this. One of the sponsors of our program today is Teleos Press. Lots of really great books at teleospress.com. Teleos is the Greek word for whole, complete, perfect. And it's spelled by way T-E-L-E-I-O-S. T-E-L-E-I-O-S. So it's teleospress.com. Go there. There's a lot of wonderful volumes, including the new book, The 5Q Method of Discipleship, which will teach you how to be a serious disciple maker for Jesus Christ. So check it out, teleospress.com. All right, here are the couple of issues we want to throw out there. One of them is, maybe this is too evident. Maybe this is just uh, too easy. But I noticed in USA Today uh, some months ago, there was an article that I thought, you know, someday I want to talk about that in front of a, a podcast crowd. And so here we are. Uh some of you are waiting to get back into church or, you know, friends, family, relatives, uh, associates that are just waiting until it's safer to get back to church. I got to tell you, that's never been the best of the church. We're waiting until it's safe. Uh, the faster, and this is what USA Today says. And by the way, do I need to remind you, USA Today is by no means an evangelical, charismatic, Bible-thumping uh, newspaper. It just isn't. But this is what they said. The faster people get back to church, the better it will be for them and the country as a whole. (laughs) Can you you imagine? This is what they say. A recent Gallup survey found that those who have prioritized weekly attendance at worship through the pandemic have emerged, not merely unscathed, but mentally improved. 
Weekly worshipers reported a four percentage point increase in their mental health. Every other subgroup went negative. Regardless of race, age, political affiliation, gender, or income, only those who consistently attended religious services each week, online or in person, are happier today than they were a year ago when COVID-19 began to capsize the globe and has been longer now than a year. But this lines up with historical research on mental health and church attendance. Brought, get, folks, if you want to know why people ought to go to church, uh, it, it ought to be because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But keep in mind, broad-based evidence demonstrates that attendance at worship services is indispensable to a happy, generous, flourishing society. Pew Research found that actively religious adults are more likely to be happy, volunteer time to good causes, and be more civically involved than non-religious or non-practicing religious folks. Other studies, like one from the National Library of Medicine, provide evidence that regular churchgoers live longer, happier lives. So one of the ways you could ask people to come to your church service this week is say, do you want to be happy? <laughs> do you want to live longer? I know a way. Uh, you know, everybody's big about science today. Hey, follow the science. All right, well, let's follow it. The science says going to church helps big time. Now, what's fascinating is how quickly we wanted to close our doors when this COVID mess showed up. All but 3% of churches in the United States closed their physical doors when the pandemic began in that March of so long ago. 3%. Uh, can I say, ours was one of those churches. We didn't close down. And we just decided, hey, no, we're, we're not going to do it. If you want to come in and you know scrub up your hands and socially distance and mask up, come any way you want to come, but we're not closing down. We are not closing. And particularly, particularly if the government says close down, we're really not going to close down. The government does not get an opportunity to say to the church of Jesus Christ, you're closed uh, because we're always going to be open one way or another. We're always going to be open. I'm not just saying across uh, the internet. I'm saying no, open, physically open. I think it's important. And I think it's important for you to get physically back to church. Maybe somebody out there is listening right now and says, eh, I don't know, still it's kind of dangerous to me. Listen, <laughs> there's all kinds of things that are dangerous out there that we do on a regular basis. Uh, I don't think going to church is going to be one of the things that puts you at any more at risk than the many other things we're doing on a regular basis in our lives. Hey, <laughs> attendance at worship is in decline. I don't know if you've noticed, most churches have not bounced back fully. And most uh, scholars will say, and they're not going to bounce back fully. Well, I think, uh, you know, if, if you're full of the spirit and you're getting out there and you're talking about the things that need to be talked about and you're sharing the good news, people are always going to be attracted to good news. Your chance has an opportunity to grow, even if it's not right now. And so what we say is, let's be people of good news. And this article from the secular USA Today says, hey, the faster people get back to church, the better it will be for you, the better it will be for the nation. Let's open our church back up. Let's get back. Let's invite people back because it's going to make them stronger. It's going to make them healthier. It's going to help them to live longer. That's that's good news, isn't it? All right, here, here we go. Item two. Uh, Senator Jean Shaheen from uh, New Hampshire, Democrat from New Hampshire, issued a warning, and this kind of feeds into our uh, the, the thing I want to talk to you about today. 
She has issued a warning to the Supreme Court uh, before the oral arguments in this potential landmark abortion case that's in front of the Supreme Court even this week, uh, claiming that a revolution, a revolution will take place if the high court overturns existing precedent. During a virtual event in New Hampshire, uh, she uh, was asked, hey, has public debate over uh, abortion muted uh, due to so many people in the U.S. only knowing life post Roe v. Wade? And Shaheen asserted that nothing would be muted about the reaction to a possible overturning of that decision. Quote, I hope the Supreme Court is listening to the people of the United States because, to go back to the question, I think if you want to see a revolution, go ahead, outlaw Roe v. Wade and see what the response is of the public, particularly young people, because I think that will not be acceptable to young women or young men. Now, to be clear, if indeed the Supreme Court would outlaw Roe v. Wade, that doesn't mean abortion goes away. It means the states get to decide whether they have an abortion. So, where they have abortion in their state. Mississippi, the minute Roe v. Wade would not be the law of the land, guess what? Uh, We have it written in by legislation. That means we don't have abortion in Mississippi. And a lot, not not a lot, a handful of states have that kind of understanding. But it just means it goes back to the states. But she talks about a revolution. Can I say something here? I mean, we have had anywhere from... uh, uh, a million to 1.5 million deaths per year of unborn babies uh, since Roe v. Wade became the law of the land. Can I say that's a revolution? Killing babies and being sanctioned by the government to be able to do so, that's a revolution. Now, is this going to be a counter revolution? Church of Jesus Christ, let's hope so. Let's hope so. Uh, one of the great stories, I think, of activism in the United States of America is that once this became the law of the land back in 1973, the pro-life Christians didn't go away. I would have predicted they would be heard of very little and then soon to be no more on the issue. No, they stayed in the fight. They stayed in the fight. They kept showing up at the abortion clinics. I mean, crisis pregnancy centers. Today, there's more crisis pregnancy centers than there are abortion clinics. How does that happen? Well, that happens because of the counter-revolution. That's how that happens. Anyway, there's a 63 majority of justices appointed by Republicans, so conservative more or less, that could overturn Roe v. Wade. Let's be prayerful about that and hope indeed that happens. Which brings us to the topic of the day. Uh, in freedom and classes at Wesley Biblical Seminary, this, this is where I teach at Wesley Biblical Seminary. I've been here for 33 years. There's traditionally been in my classes a, a couple of unusual requirements. One of them was if you wanted an A in the course, the only way to get an A in the course is if you went with me weekly to either the prison to preach or to the abortion clinic to try to share hope with the ladies thinking themselves in crises. Some days we would have 20 or so students in front of the clinic, singing hymns, praying, trying to talk to the incoming and outgoing ladies, not being rude, not yelling at people, just simply trying to share love, share songs, share perspectives. One day, one of our young women students said, hey, Dr. Freedom, come over here. I've got someone I want you to talk to. So I walked over and introduced myself, asked her her first name and noticed a blue band on her wrist. And that blue band said, Jehovah Jireh. 
So I asked her, do you know what that means? She didn't know what Jehovah Jireh meant. Now you all know it's, it's the Lord provides, God provides. He's a providing one. I said, well, come on, let me walk you back to your car. And on the way we talk, I said, you're pretty scared right now, aren't you? She said, yeah. It says, your mom and dad don't know about this yet, do they? Right. Your pastor doesn't know about it either. Mm-hmm. So you think they're all going to be really upset? Oh, yeah. You don't know how you're going to make it right. Yep. All right, I said, listen, this is what we're going to do. You're going to pray with me right now. And then you're going to go home and never come back to this place again. You're going to tell your folks. And when you tell your folks, they may be upset, but God's going to provide in that very moment. He will provide for you. You're going to tell your church and they might be mad, but God will provide your pastor. And God's going to provide in those moments. And you're going to have this baby. And somehow God is going to provide and you two are going to be just fine as God provides continually and you move forward to a kingdom future. So she nodded. I said, is there anything else you need? Anything at all my church can help you with? She said, no. And we prayed. And in that moment, pretty much the moment was forgotten. I, I just didn't think about it again. Talked to a lot of people out there. But six years later, I got a Facebook message. And it was from whom we're going to call right now Grace. Just change her name a little bit here. And this was Grace's message. I just want to say thank you for hearing me out and talking with me six years ago at the Jackson, Mississippi abortion clinic. Back then, I was a frightened Christian girl who thought abortion was the only way to save my life. So I had the full examination and even paid the hundred bucks to have the procedure done in one week. When I left the building, you talked with me and pointed out a blue bracelet on my wrist, which read Jehovah Jireh. You told me that he will provide a way for this baby to live if I trust him and not listen to fear. I was so frightened and afraid of what my parents and church family would think of me. I just wanted you to know that I am a mother to a very loving and wonderful six-year-old boy. He just finished kindergarten and loves everything superhero. He hates vegetables and loves chocolate chip cookies. At night, he loves to give me the biggest of hugs. In the morning, he's pure sunshine. To top it off, God made it possible for me to finish college and led me to a very godly man to whom I'm now married, who loves this boy as if he were his very own. He's in his third year of medical school and will graduate soon. Six years ago, I did not believe any of this could be possible, but you did. You helped me to choose life and trust in God over fear and death. Listen, when I came to Wesley Biblical Seminary years ago, three decades ago, uh, they asked me all kinds of questions like they do in interviews. But one of the questions, because this is very important for them, was, are you pro-life? Do you affirm the pro-life position? And I said, not really. And of course, as you might imagine, very conservative seminary, all eyebrows went up in the interview. And that meant, what do you mean? And so I answered again to the eyebrows, if I were really and truly pro-life, I suppose I would do something about it. The intellectual position, sure, I'm all for that, but actually engaging the issue with some degree of real effort, not very pro-life. You know, I got the job. 
But four years later, I was jogging with the editorial director of the Jackson Clarion Ledger, which is our statewide daily here in Mississippi. He was bemoaning that particular morning that his new conservative publisher was forcing him to hire conservative op-ed contributors. So he asked a small crowd, pounding the pavement with him, me and another buddy or two, if we had any ideas. And at the end of the run, I said, boy, I wish I had the time and the talent to do something like that. And he said, well, you ought to. Throw us a couple calls. So I did. They liked the efforts. I began writing for the statewide daily twice a week. A year later, a local radio station wanted kind of a new local Rush Limbaugh-esque on-air personality. And not long after, a local TV station wanted conservative perspective and eventually a, a regular presence as a political analyst. So the radio show eventually went national and the other opportunities continued. But it gave a small seminary professor the chance to interact with state and national politicians like governors, Kirk Fordyce and Haley Barber, senators Trent Lott and Thad Cochran, politicians like Lamar Alexander and dozen other presidential candidates making a deep South run, personalities like Franklin Graham and James Dobson, Heritage Foundation, Cato Institute policy experts, hundreds of authors, and on it goes. It was a hilarious, hilarious run in the media. First column I ever wrote for that pro-abortion and ideologically left-of-center newspaper was about a lady named Beverly Smith. Now, Beverly had done her residency in Cook County Hospital in Chicago. She saw, she had seen, what a coat hanger could do to a woman's genitalia. Uh, she thus became shocked and horrified by it all, moved to Mississippi, moved to Jackson, Mississippi, to start her OBGYN practice and decided, as part of her community service, to start Mississippi's first abortion clinic. So in December... 1975, those clinic doors opened up. And her work there was obviously a great improvement over standards she remembered from the late 60s. In her time, she removed hundreds of what the clinic called POCs, products of conception, otherwise known as babies. Once, at a conference on running abortion clinics, she was instructed in the administration of the procedure. After suction, according to her training, you're supposed to go to the sink and pick over the dismembered POCs, products of conception, to be sure that all parts were indeed there and accounted for. The placenta, the spine, the skull, the thorax, the ribs, the arms, the legs, and so on. To leave any part in the womb was an invitation to post-abortion complications. So, she had already begun to deal with intellectual integrity at that point. But at the sink, she says, most abortionists have this strong visceral reaction. Most abortions get it. Certainly she did. Because in the absence, this is her quote, in the absence of knowing whether the tissue is a baby or not, you suddenly know this was a person. A person soon to be a baby, a child, a teenager, and adult, but now extinguished. So one day, while she was sorting through an aborted POC, she saw this little perfect bicep of a baby boy. Her mind raced to her own little son, who at that time was running through the house with his arm half cocked, saying, let me show you my muscle, mama. At that instant, and in the shadow of one of the last abortions she ever performed, she asked herself, what am I doing? 10 minutes ago, this is all together. The arm was growing. And then I did something, and here it is in pieces. What am I doing? 
So she decided then and there to quit performing abortions. Since that time, her life has changed dramatically. Part of her spiritual story is how Wesley Biblical Seminary students knocked on her door and invited her to Christ. Her name is now Dr. Beverly McMillan, and she's been arrested for her protest at abortion clinics. She's been featured on many national shows like Oprah and has served on the board of our seminary and numerous other boards. Social conservatives know how little positive media treatment their issues tend to get. And so I'm all of a sudden now in the media, and I have my opportunity. And this Mississippi crowd was so famished for conservative perspective and for pro-life perspective, I just decided, hey, let me give them some. And that's the first column I ever wrote. The first column I ever wrote. Now, the Mississippi crowd was so famished that, that I, I, I showed up, started writing, and it wasn't long before they gave me the Jackson Pro-Lifer of the Year. Mentioning the issue once every couple of months got me Jackson Pro-Lifer of the Year. Huge crowd there. I received it. Shed a few tears. I was thrilled for the acknowledgement, but I was also a little unsettled by it all. I mean, you can get an award for simply talking about this issue every now and then. And then, I mean, really? That's all it takes? Now, listen, I, I love the story. If you don't have E. Stanley Jones books, you need to go buy some. You're going to love these books. E. Stanley Jones, Old Methodist Missionary. He told of his conversion, uh, excuse me, he told of his conversation with a Brahmin at one of his famous religious roundtables. And the Brahmin says, you know, as Jesus has saved you, so Krishna has saved me. And uh, Jones didn't argue, for that was the rule of those religious roundtables he held in India when he was there. But he invited the Brahmin to come with Jones and the others as they ministered to the outcasts. Ah, said the Brahmin, I'm saved, but I'm not saved that far. In other words, the Brahmin had salvation of a sort, but not enough to take action seriously and make action central to his Christian faith. So even after the Jackson Pro-Life of the Year Award in tow, I, I think I was like the Brahmin. I was a pro-lifer of sorts, but a pro-lifer of that far variety to actually do something about the issue, not just talk about it. Now, of course, I had all my excuses. I mean, you know, I, I got one or two or three or four jobs here. My spiritual gift is to teach and preach and, and not, you know, do anything more than simply serve up red meat in the newspaper or on talk radio, but actually do something. That's not my gift. Well, we, we, <laughs> we, we, planted, a, we planted a local church a couple uh, decades ago, and after the very first service, one of the ladies came up, and by the way, she served on the board of Pro-Life Mississippi, and she walked up to me and she says, she says Pastor. Now, if you're playing a church and someone calls you pastor, you're thrilled because that means they're ready to join up. And uh, so I was thrilled. But then she said, pastor, when are we going to start our abortion clinic ministry? Now, nothing can take the joy out of a highly successful first service of a brand new church plant as fast as a question like that. I mean, prior to that moment, I'd rather enjoyed critiquing pastors and church leaders who didn't want to talk you know, just, that's all they wanted to do. They wanted to talk about the issue. They just didn't want to do anything. They didn't want to leave the ecclesiastical premises to do anything about it. And so one of the top 10 subjects of the Matt Freedom Show had always been, hey, if pastors would just lead their congregations with their presence at the abortion clinics and at the crisis pregnancy centers, we could end this abortion atrocity overnight in this state. So that was safe to say because I wasn't a pastor. 
all of a sudden I was a pastor now. And the servant was uh, the, the sermon wasn't more than five minutes concluded before one of the leading pro-lifers in the state asked me to put up or shut up. So my kids and I headed out to the clinic that next week and been pretty much out there for the last 21 years. So I, I just want to say now, a couple decades later, I've, I very much dislike the abortion clinic service that I render. I just don't think it's enough. But listen, what has happened. We have verbal record of over a thousand babies being saved in the front of that clinic while Wesley Biblical Seminary and my church, Dayspring Community Church, have been out there. And why do I say the clinic? Because in the recent Supreme Court case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, that's the very place we've been standing for so many years. So here we go. Why it's important, I think, for you and I and our churches to engage this issue. First is culpability. Now, the media, as you might imagine, the media gives you lots of opportunities to talk about a lot of fun and interesting stuff. And the opportunities sometimes are TV, radio, and sometimes newspaper column for me. So I was in a televised four-person panel discussing our community in Jackson, Mississippi. And at the time, I wrote a twice-weekly column in the statewide paper and, again, that, that radio show I had. So I was uh, asked to provide some commentary. And the deal was... The local government was in disarray because the president of the city council and another councilman were headed to jail. The council president had been convicted of making an under-the-table deal with a strip club for the purposes of rezoning and had been sentenced to time in federal correction facility. So it was rather obvious that interesting and relevant issue aside, our discussion was boring. I don't know if you've ever been some part of something boring when you were boring. But uh, I can tell when I'm boring. So I, I, I looked over at the newscaster at the first break. She looked over at me. She says, Matt, this isn't going well. I said, no, it's not. She goes, uh, well, what's going wrong? I said, you're not asking very good questions. Well, that's all it took. She came back after the first break, looked at my direction, said, Matt, whose fault is this? Well, that was mission accomplished. I mean, I became agitated because what I thought she was saying in that moment was, so, you know, Surely, as a white guy in this community, you, you got to be blamed for some of this. I mean, my, my, my face got red. I prepared to tell her in dramatic, on-air fashion that United States is a nation of laws. Mississippi was a state of laws. And our dear capital city was a city of laws. And frankly, the city council president had trampled on him. He tried to line his pockets at the expense of the public he was elected to serve. If he were looking for culprits, there was only one place to put the blame, smack dab in the council president's lap as he sat in his undeserved jail cell. Oh, I'd say undeserved, well-deserved jail cell. That's what I was going to say. But I never got the words out. Never got the words out. The panelist seated to me was a gentleman named John Perkins. I don't know if you've ever heard of his name, but he's an author, he's a teacher, community developer, noted evangelical leader. He's a Christian statements statesman and a huge, big-time Jackson resident. So he's one of my heroes. So as I prepared to answer Ms. Rankin with what was undoubtedly going to be a vehement tirade, Dr. Perkins responded before I could get a word of it out, and he says, it's my fault. All heads turned his way. Yeah, it's my fault. I've lived in this community for decades as a Bible teacher. I should have been able to do something to create an environment where what our council president did 
would have been unthinkable because of my personal investment in his life. You want someone to blame? I'll take the blame. And in that moment, I remember thinking, I was a mere boy sitting next to a great man of God. His was a heart full of sorrow, but his was a heart full of love. Mine was a heart more than ready to cast blame. Hardly compassionate, surely not mournful. Why is it important to engage this issue? Because it's our fault, y'all. It's our fault. The Roe v. Wade thing never should have happened. And when it did happen, we should have went, gone rushing in with a whole lot more of us than did to say, hey, we are the solution to this because we are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. The next thing I'd say is it's in our heritage. Christian History published an article several years ago by a guy named Rodney Stark. It was called Outliving the Pagans. Early Christians, he said, the early church demonstrated the superiority of their faith in large measure because they outwept in demonstrably effective fashion, they outcried the surrounding culture. Women outnumbered men among the early converts, even though men vastly outnumbered women in the society at large. For instance, there were an estimated 131 men for every 100 women in Rome. This disparity was even greater in other locales. Now, there was a reason. If you're delivered of a child, wrote a man named Hilarion to his pregnant wife back then, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, discard it. So that's what was going on at the time in the early church, and uh, I'd say the early church culture, the culture surrounding the early church. Frequent abortions entailing great risk killed many women and left many more barren. Christians said something's got to be done. Infants, girls and the disabled in particular, were frequently abandoned by the Roman culture to die of exposure. Let's just throw them on a dump pile. Christians would extend charity to these abandoned children, traveling through back alleys into the places designated for desertion to find them. They'd walk up and down alleys. They'd go to that place. They ran, you always say this all the time, but they ran to the sound of the pain. And they did something about the pain. These acts and compassion made the church attractive. And so, y'all, we've got to be people not only of works of piety, that is prayer and Bible study and attending church, we got to be people of works of mercy. And that is, when we hear the pain, we rush to it to do something about it. And so Wesley one time was asked about holiness, and he said, you know, your holiness makes you as conspicuous as the sun in the sky. John Wesley said, you cannot hide your Christian character. Love cannot be hidden any more than light. Least of all, it can't be hidden when it shines forth in action. In action. When you exercise yourself in a labor of love, in any kind of good work, you are observed. We may, we may as well try to hide a, a city as to hide a Christian. It's a purpose of God that every Christian should be in open view we are to give light to all that are in the house. So abortion with the death of around a million babies a year is the issue of issues for the contemporary disciple. We ought to be unabashedly and actively conspicuous concerning this and similar issues. If you want to get into something called life-changing discipleship, you need to get active on some issues, and this may well be one of them. And then this, I think activism revives. You remember Lee Strobel? Y'all know Lee Strobel. You've read his books. One of his books is The Case for Faith. And in that book, he interviews a guy named Charles Templeton. Do you remember this? Once an evangelism colleague, a, a dear friend of Billy Graham, 
Templeton eventually left that close friendship and abandoned God as well. Strobel wondered what had become of the agnostic Templeton, who had subsequently pursued a career in the media and written a book called Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. Templeton shared with Strobel how he progressed from once ministering with Billy Graham to embracing agnosticism. And this is what he said. Straight up quote here. It was a photograph in Life magazine. It was a picture of a black woman in northern Africa. They were experiencing a devastating drought. And she was holding her dead baby in her arms and looking up to heaven with the most forlorn expression. I looked at it and I thought, is it possible to believe that there is a loving or caring creator when all this woman needed was rain? That grief drove Templeton away from God. Apparently, in that moment, he felt that his grief was bigger than God. The problem was bigger than God. Now, I read a lot of stuff, and I love to read newsletters from time to time. And Somehow or another, I got a newsletter from Wheaton College. And the president at that time was a guy named Dwayne Litvin. And he wanted to do something that would bring this kind of argumentation to the Wheaton College alumni worldview. And so one of the persons he talked about was a guy named Kevin Carter. Now, Kevin Carter was a photojournalist. He won the 1994 Pulitzer Prize for feature photography with a photo that depicted a starving Sudanese child crawling toward food under the gaze of a nearby vulture. Do you remember the picture? You can look it up. It's as sad as it can be. A very haunting image, but it drew international attention to the terrible suffering in the famine-stricken Sudan. And then, of course, it brought Carter himself under scrutiny. The question always arises: wherever Carter traveled, he was a famous guy now, won a Pulitzer Prize. Everybody wanted to know, hey, can you make a speech? Can you give a talk? But then there's always question and answer. And everybody would ask this question. Not everybody, but, you know, it was always asked. What happened to the kid? He took a picture of the kid. What happened to the starving kid? We'd just like to know. What? So after the picture was taken, what action did you take to help the pitiful kid? And Carter was forced to admit he'd simply walked away. With a growing sense of grief over his lack of response and all the other suffering he'd witnessed in this career, this award-winning journalist, photojournalist, attached a garden hose to the exhaust pipe of his car kill himself. And he left a note. I'm really, really sorry. The pain of life overrides the joy to the point that joy does not exist. Now, Jesus goes up one day on a mountain, brings his disciples to him. And the second thing he says to them is this, blessed are those who mourn. And Litvin in that Wheaton alumni newsletter then said this about another personality in the Sudan. The college president noted that life didn't get any easier in that locale after Carter's untimely suicide demise. Civil war continued, killing more than 2 million people. In the midst of that human suffering, Dr. Warren Cooper served with Samaritan's Purse as a physician in southern Sudan. He experienced human devastation equal to or worse than Carter observed. 
still after five years in a hospital described as a living history museum of pathology, he chose to remain. How did he cope? I mean, Carter couldn't do it. So how did he, how did he cope with the suffering, with the pain, with the immense anguish of human agony? How did, how do you do it? Well, for Warren, the field of medicine allows him to live out his Christian faith, not just in word, but in deed. I think it'd be very hard to continue doing this if you didn't have a sense of ultimate meaning to what you're doing. And so it goes, friends. Faith in Christ is not something that helps us to escape pain, but to the contrary, helps us to mourn it well and apply the love of God within that anguish. So y'all, a lot of talk in this nation going on right now about abortion. It's not enough to talk about it. It's not enough to vote pro-life. We've got to live pro-life. Yeah, I hope your vote is pro-life. I hope your worldview is pro-life, but your hands and your feet, your running to the sound of the pain needs also to be pro-life if we're serious about this movement of life in our culture today. All right, it's a wrap. It's been an honor to have you listen to Life-Changing Discipleship with Matt Friedman. Hey, tell your friends about this. In fact, this very issue, send it out to some folks who might need to listen to this particular program. Check out our Facebook page, Life-Changing Discipleship, and check out our books at Amazon.com. Type in Matt Friedman into that search engine and see what's offered. And always, always tell others about our podcast. And remember, my wife thanks you, my daughter thanks you, my sons and their wives thank you, and I can assure you that I thank you for listening to Life-Changing Discipleship today. Love God, live clean, keep the faith, make disciples, and God bless you, dear friends. We'll see you back here real soon.